Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Today's guest is the 27th Prime Minister of Australia, the very first uh, female Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. Uh, she has just written a new book. It is called Women and Leadership, uh, and she has co-authored that with Dr. Ngozi Nkojo Iwiala, uh, and it's excellent. I really recommend if you are interested in women uh, in leadership roles all around the world and the various different challenges that they face, some of them completely unique, and of course, some of them very much the same uh, because of the nature of being the first in their jobs or or in case of some of the leaders who are interviewed in the books, not being the first in their jobs, being in countries where they've not only had one female leader, but they've had more than one female leader. So uh, it was fascinating to talk to Julia about her life post-politics. That's what I wanted to focus on is what happens next after you have that first line in your autobiography, when you have that first line on your Wikipedia entry, Australia's first female prime minister, the 27th prime minister of Australia, what comes next? What do you do with the rest of your life when that is no longer what you are defined by? So that's what Julia and I really chat about today. And we have some fun along the way. And I really hope that you enjoy it. If you like this podcast, this is independent media and what i mean by that is this is listener supported i have a patreon page it is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash willosophy w-i-l-o-s-o-p-h-y and you can go there and contribute for as little as a dollar a month it's in u.s dollars i should point that out but as little as a dollar a month up to whatever you want to do and of course i also understand in these harsh economic times um i i like a lot of people uh, have been completely unemployed for the last four months so I understand if you have been a previous supporter on the Patreon page, but you can't do that at the moment, then uh, absolutely good luck to you and spend your money on what you need to be spending your money on. But I have been overwhelmed by the generosity of the audience who have been contributing to the Patreon page. And sometimes people will apologize for only contributing a dollar a month. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't mind if you join at the, the lowest level or the highest level that you can afford. I just love that you are, you know, demonstrably showing your support of what it is I do and it encourages us to keep doing it. And of course, in that vein, we've set ourselves a little target for this year, which is to get to to $5,000 per month. Now, at $5,000 per month, we can afford to pay Podcast Mike, who puts all the interviews together. And of course, even more work for Podcast Mike at the moment with me being in different places with our guests, different audio qualities with our guests. Sometimes the microphones we've set up don't work uh, as an episode that will be coming up. Uh, the next episode will show you, but uh, the reason you get to hear these episodes, regardless of the quality of the internet or the recordings, is because of the brilliant Podcast Mike. And uh, I believe that he should be paid appropriately for that. So that's what the majority of the money goes to. But of course, the brilliant James Fosdyke, who does all the original art for the podcast as well. Uh, if we can get to $5,000, we can afford to do two episodes a week. Basically, that's it. So my aim is that we will do one brand new episode every week. You'll get to hear a new philosophy with a brand new guest, probably recorded over the internet for the foreseeable future, I suppose. Um, and then after that, you'll get a catch-up episode as well. The ones that I started doing during our downtime, which was catching up with previous guests to see how they were doing in these times. We're going to keep those going because people have really uh, liked the updated episodes, reflecting on how things are still the same, reflecting on how things have changed. So we want to get to a position where we can do 
uh, two episodes a week, one brand new one and uh, one catching up with the previous guests. Uh, up until that time, if we do make it to the magical uh, 5,000, occasionally uh, you'll get a two-episode week, but mostly we're going to stick to one-episode weeks, and there'll be a combination of brand new guests and catches up with previous guests. So thank you for listening to the show. Um, I hope you enjoy this chat with Julia Gillard. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and I'm very excited to have today's guest on the show, not just because we happen to barrack for the same football team, and that football team had a very good win on the weekend, so we're probably both in a pretty decent mood on a Monday morning when we're recording this, but I'm a great admirer of her, and uh, we'll jump straight into the podcast. I will say for the sake of my podcast guest, this is how every episode starts, so please don't think that I'm uh, being insulting on the front foot. I ask a very simple question. Who are you? (laughs) Who am I? I'm Julia Gillard. People probably know me because I was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, But now I'm a range of things. I chair a number of bodies, including, of course, Beyond Blue here in Australia. And I'm an author with a book out. It's interesting. So we'll get to the book, which is fantastic, by the way. I was lucky enough to receive a PDF copy in advance of this interview. And I I had a chance to read probably about two thirds of it. And I am probably after this interview going to go and read the rest of it because I just found it completely fascinating. So I highly recommend that and all the plugs will be in the intro. People will have already heard those. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you've been Prime Minister of a country, I imagine, that forevermore you do start with that. You know, whatever else it is you do for the rest of your life, people, you know, know that you were the Prime Minister of the country. So can we can we leave the Prime Minister bit behind a little bit to start this today and talk about from when you were Prime Minister onwards, because that's what I'm really fascinated about, this next chapter in your life. When you've reached a political peak like being the leader of your country, what to do next? So can you take me back to that moment when you were, not necessarily the moment itself, but when you were no longer Prime Minister and you decided that you weren't going to be one of those ex-Prime Ministers who stuck around and destabilised the current Prime Minister. What? Where were you at the time thinking about what it is you would do next? Yeah, going back to those moments, I mean, firstly, there was a lot of leave-taking. So there is a grieving period associated with the loss of a job that's meant a lot to you and the close of a chapter in your life. After the leave-taking, I returned to Melbourne and, you know, it was the election campaign and I didn't want to distract from what was happening during the election campaign, so I basically sat at home for several weeks, uh, which we're all very used to now, of course, sitting at home, Uh, but that was an unusual thing for me to do. But it gave me the opportunity to sort of physically recover a bit because you're really tired and you feel it when you stop and mentally get some space to think about what I was going to do next. And I decided pretty early on that whatever shape it took, what I wanted to do was to keep making a contribution to the things I really believed in, 
But I knew I'd have to find a new way to do that because I didn't want to be running around in domestic politics anymore. And so that led me to taking those kinds of values and interests globally, which means my life since, other than during COVID-19, has been a sort of collage of uh, travel, doing things internationally, as well as spending time back home. And it's the first time in my life I haven't had the one big job, but I've had several interests and that's changed my work style because you've got to sort of juggle between things rather than the intensity of the one big thing. It's very interesting because obviously being Prime Minister, you have to, uh, you know, be there for everybody and you have to be across every issue to a certain degree and make decisions on a whole range of issues, some of which you'll probably be, just by the nature of being a human being, less interested in than other areas. So you go out of being a jack of all trades, in a sense, that you have to cover off everybody into this idea of, well, what are these areas where I specifically feel passionate about and how how is it that I can help in these areas? Did you come to those areas instinctively or was that a process of, you really sat down and went through some sort of, you know, put, wrote a list of things that you could contribute to and decided which one you were passionate about the most. How did that process of choosing those things come about? A bit of all of that, really. I mean, some of it was instinctive um, in the sense that, you know, a big uh, through line in my life has been a focus on education, a focus on opportunity. That's what first got me into anything that looked like politics, even though it was very small people politics in the student movement. And so, you know, it was instinctive for me to say, I want some part of the next bit of my life to be about education. Um, What, and this is going to sound a little bit odd, but what came a bit more slowly was the sense that I wanted a section of the next bit of my life to be about women and leadership. And you would think, wow, the you know time you stepped out of the prime ministership as the first woman, that would have been with you. And it was with me. But in terms of actively wanting to make a contribution, that sort of settled on me as I wrote my first book about my time as Prime Minister and I wanted to write really thoughtfully about this question of gender because I was left with the sense when I finished being Prime Minister, you know, how much of this was me? How much of it was the political times in which I lived, the circumstances, and how much of it was because I was a woman? And I wanted to try and answer that. And then I've got more and more intellectually intrigued around the research base and what more we can do. And so that's led to a series of involvements, particularly the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. And then Beyond Blue was something that met with an interest but was an opportunity that came to me. So it wasn't something I went out and sought or structured, but when Jeff Kennett, you know, rang me up and said, I'd like you to take over being chair, um, you know, it was just an aha, of course, moment. I'd love to do that. I've often been fascinated by the idea that sometimes other people have better ideas of what you should be doing with your time than you do yourself. Uh, It is not uh, it's something that I've run into a bit in my life. You know, the current television show that I do was something that if I had been given a blank check to make a television show, I never would have made that show. Somebody else thought that I could make this sort of show and it's you know been successful. And sometimes things that I come up with myself 
aren't quite as successful. Speak to me a little bit about just the idea of the difference between choosing a project and having a project chosen for you. Is there a difference? Uh, do you come at it in a different way? Has it revealed something about you that other people saw in you that you perhaps did not see in yourself? Yeah, I think that there is a real difference. And I agree with you that often others can see opportunities for you that you wouldn't scout for yourself. I think one of the things with Beyond Blue is I'd drawn this very hard line in my mind about not wanting to involve myself in contemporary Australian politics, but I still wanted to find ways of making a contribution to this nation. This is my home. I love this nation. I've you know, devoted so much of my life's time to making a difference to it. But I was finding it hard to conceive of how I could make that continuing contribution without being dragged back into the hurly-burly of day-to-day politics. And Jeff saw that in a way that I didn't. Um, And Beyond Blue has given me that opportunity, which is a really precious one, where everybody is sort of receiving me in that role, not through the lens of did you like her or didn't you like her when she was in politics or do you vote Labor or don't you vote Labor, uh, but receiving me through the lens of it's a good thing that people who have been at the centre of politics go on and to do do something that's in the community's interest. So it's given me a, a, a space to make a contribution that I very much value. And I'm not sure without Jeff's intervention, I would have seen that for myself. Uh, let's talk a little about mental health while we're here, because it's certainly something during this current global pandemic that is front of mind and obviously the situation that the world finds itself is only exacerbated the struggles that people might already be having with mental health and probably you know pick the scab off a few that you know weren't there previously as well what what is it that you're seeing in the community around the awareness of mental health but also the struggles with mental health during this time I think that there are some good signs and some troubling signs. The good sign, I would say, is that the discussion of mental health has been right there alongside the discussion of the virus and the restrictions and lockdowns and the economic impact. And I do really think to myself, if this had all happened, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I don't think mental health would have been in the foreground the way it is now. So that's good. Um, A second thing that's good is we are seeing enormous numbers of people reach out for support. Now, it might sound really odd to say that's a good thing, but we'd rather people reached out and got some help than suffered in silence. And so the fact people feel comfortable ringing the Beyond Blue Coronavirus Wellbeing Support Service or jumping online, and they're doing that in their hundreds of thousands, reassures me that people have got the message that help is available But with all of that, this is still, you know, a lot of weight on people's shoulders. And I'm worried that the weight just becomes heavier. You know, it's one thing to think, oh, it'll be like this for a few months and then a few months go by and it's still like this. And then circumstances like Victoria where it gets worse again, I think that's really exhausting people. And that's a big theme when people contact Beyond Blue. People are just exhausted. So we've got to kind of work our way through to 
um, you know, a sustainable model for this new normal where people can roll with it a bit um, and accept that there will be times when we can go out and about and times when we're called upon to restrict our activities and hopefully not receive going back and forth between the two as too big a shock. Uh, so mental health practices, I know when you're uh, being there to support people who are going through mental health struggles and obviously in the role at Beyond Blue, you know, the front line. I mean, I've had cause in the past to speak to Lifeline and Beyond Blue on the phone, uh, often on behalf of other people, you know, when you're looking for some advice. And this is one of the things I always like to mention is those lines aren't just there for the person who's going through the struggle. If you are a family member or a best friend or, you know, a work colleague of somebody who you can see is struggling, but you don't necessarily have the right tools to be able to help support them, those lines are also very helpful in that regard and I and I think the people who do that work on the front line do absolutely incredible work and there's not enough money and not enough support that they could get to be able to do that work in my opinion but what about yourself do you have like mental health practices are there things that you personally do to make sure that you're doing okay during this time yeah look I um I guess several years ago, I wouldn't have put the label mental health practices on a lot of this, but because of the work at Beyond Blue, I've come to understand more about it. I mean, I try and do, you know, the basic things that we recommend at Beyond Blue, you you know, try and a bit of physical exercise, staying in contact with people, um, trying to stop yourself, pull yourself up, engage in some mindfulness to bring you back to the moment if you find that your mind is just running away with you and particularly running downhill if you're starting to, um, you know, catastrophize the the future um, and you just, you know, beyond, um, you know, we've all got challenges to deal with. So obviously sometimes we do have to think about difficult things, but I mean really be in a cycle that is uh, well beyond a reaction to the pressures that you face. You just can't get your mind out of it. Um, some mindfulness um, practice make a difference for me. Um, I've always been someone, fortunately, who's slept pretty well. I'm not the sort of person who pads around at 3am in the morning, and that stood me in good stead. And I'm a big believer, if you can, give yourself some time out, whether it's a good night's sleep or whether it's time away from the electronic devices or time concentrating on something other than day-to-day thoughts, that that relieves a lot of pressure. And even as you're doing that, your subconscious is grinding out some solutions for you. Well, how is the awareness of mental health in our political class? Because it strikes me that politics is a very hard game and it is played in often in a very cruel manner you know people talk about how mean it is on twitter i say watch question time and that's just the stuff that we see you know face to face we we know that of the backstabbing and the games played behind the scenes trying to destroy people's career destroy people's confidence how is the awareness of mental health amongst, you know, our Canberra class? Like the community more than it used to be, but probably not where we need it to be. Uh, You would probably remember that there were some big shocks in the federal parliament around mental health issues. Um, Way back, uh, Senator Senator Nick Sherry on the Labor side of the fence tried to commit suicide, and that, I think, caused people to reflect 
uh, a Labor member of Parliament called Greg Wilton did commit suicide and uh, that really um, sent a wave of emotion through the federal parliament. Um, you know, federal parliament has condolence motions, but that was one where, you know, everybody was in the chamber thinking about it, thinking about what it meant. Now, that doesn't mean that day-to-day -day practices, the push and shove of question time, it's still there. Um, politics is a competitive business, so inevitably uh, people are trying to, you know, get the one spot or the couple of spots that are available, and that means someone wins and someone loses. But I think individuals are now more focused on their reactions and keeping themselves in a good headspace than perhaps politicians, uh, you know, 20 years ago would have been. Uh, how are we playing politics? I am fascinated by... Uh, I like the idea of it, right? The idea of government seems like a good idea. And, and during a crisis like this, you can see that we have almost more of a sense of what I believe the government should be there for, which is the idea that we need a safety net in our community. The government needs to be there, you know, to support people, to look after everybody, to provide for people when they can't be provided for, to have that help in place when they can't be helped. And yet so often it seems that we go away from what politics should be about into this other game of how it's played. And I just like your sense of, is it working? Is it working well? How could it be working better? I think happily we live in a nation where things work. Uh, so, you know, we've got to uh, give a tick to Australian politics over many generations for that. I mean, you know, a crisis like this pandemic really exposes the fracture lines and the problems in your nation. And when we faced up to this test, I think we can all say to each other as, other as Australians, you know, thank goodness we built Medicare. Thank goodness we've invested in free public hospitals. Thank goodness we've been prepared to invest in pandemic preparedness. Um, all of those sort of institutional things have made a big difference right now. And if you look at a society that clearly doesn't have those things like the US, you know, virus rates, death rates, all of it is so much worse. So I think it works. But there's no doubt that on top of that sort of layer that works, generally it is the most partisan, hyper-partisan flourishes that get the biggest attention. And I think that's partly to do with the politicians, but it's also a lot to do with the uh, fragmented nature of the media environment and the public discussion now. You know, a nice, even-tempered politician might never get any public exposure because journalists are looking for the, you know, hard-hitting one line, the social media punch, all the rest of it. So I think that drives a set of behaviours where even though a lot is done cooperatively, the attention goes on the things that are being fought about the hardest. Some of those things have substance and they're a real clash of values and we've got to work it out and it's a good thing that people are going in hard and forcing us to think about it, but a fair bit of it is just theatre. And I think if we, we as voters, the media, all of us could try and contract that degree of theatre uh, and be more on the substance, that would be better for the future. Do you have hope that we can 
put the you know cork back in that bottle because obviously over my lifetime I studied journalism worked in the Canberra Press Gallery and you know when I was studying journalism there was still this idea that it was to you know keep the bastards honest that it was a you know a profession that you could admire and there are many people within it still that you of course you can admire but as a profession itself I'm sure many of the people in it would hope that the profession itself was better than it is right now. They're, they're also stuck in a system they don't want to be in. And we obviously in Australia know why that is. And I'm not going to you know, make you put it on the record. Everyone can read Kevin Rudd's book. No one's read it. But anyway, it's very long, Julia. I tried, but it's very, very long. <laughs> we got sent a lot of copies at Triple M and a lot of them ended up in the bin. But I... <laughs> <laughs> he he's right when he says that Rupert Murdoch is, you know, the most corrosive, you know, uh, worldwide. You can look at m- many of the troubles that we have worldwide and they all go back to Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch media. And so how do we put the cork back in the bottle is the bigger question. We know what is to blame. We know that as consumers, we def- definitely have a role in it because these newspapers and sites wouldn't exist if there weren't people who then responded to them and clicked on the link and wanted to see what that outrageous person had to say. So we're part of this as well, the consumers of the media. But how do we how do we reverse it? Because it's only gotten worse in my lifetime. And if it keeps getting worse, well, what we end up is, you know, Donald Trump in the White House and, you know, objective truth is not a thing that anybody even is allowed to talk about anymore. I'm hoping that this time of uh, the pandemic when we've uh, been in this extraordinary period actually helps us uh, get the change we need. So, you know, two big things to come out of this time, I think, is everybody's had a real reminder that government matters. And one of the things when I look at, you know, Donald Trump and other leaders around the world... I think for a long period of time, people have lived with the sense that government doesn't really make that much of a difference to their lives. And so in countries where there's voluntary voting, it doesn't really matter if you vote. And if you do vote, it doesn't really matter if you pick someone just to protest or make a bit of a statement whether or not they've got the capacity to do the job. And in this era where, you know, how good your government is literally has meant the difference between people living and dying because death rates are higher in countries that haven't faced the pandemic well. I hope that's reminded us that this is serious. Politics is serious. And rather than perhaps being attracted to the sort of clickbait stuff about, um, you know, a gaffe someone made, it we take with us this sense that it's more important than that and we look for more profound sources of truth and and good opinion writing than some of the froth and bubble media gives us. Second, I think this era has reminded us that expertise matters. You know, we've all spent days now, months, hanging off every word from the chief medical officer and every word from infectious diseases specialists because we know that they know a whole lot of things that we don't and we need to hear from them. And that isn't the sort of sense we've had around climate science and the like. So I hope that respect for expertise comes with us. And I just hope, too, that, you know, we've spent more than a decade now kind of staring at our phones and, you know, what's happening on social media. And my sense is people are increasingly fatigued by that model. 
and maybe we'll start looking for the slower but deeper sources of information. So we, the consumers, will help change it. So there's a popular meme at the moment and uh, it, it involves coronavirus and the countries that have handled coronavirus very well versus, you know, perhaps some of the examples of countries who have handled it the opposite. And there seems to be... Uh, a reasonable line that you could draw through the countries that have handled it well versus the countries that have handled it badly, and it is that those countries have female leaders. Is that an oversimplistic meme, or is there something in that? I think it's a bit oversimplistic. Uh, I'm sure the uh, statisticians at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership would tell me the sample size is too small, and when you look at the countries that are in those memes, you know, New Zealand and Germany and... uh, Norway and countries like that, they've got some natural advantages in uh, fighting the virus compared with some poorer places around the world. And yet I am attracted to saying that there's a truth in it. And the truth uh, is that this has been a bad era for the ultra-macho, blustering style of male leadership, you know, and I think the foremost proponent of that has actually been the president of Brazil, President Bolsonaro, who's, you know, ah, this is just a little cold, even though he's got it himself, he's never listened to the science, he's, um, you know, just tried to bluster his way through it. And you might be able to bring that style to a whole lot of political issues, but you can't bring it to a pandemic. Uh, And so if we end up looking at that and rejecting that kind of political style and wanting more of a combination of strength and empathy, then I think many women are well positioned to offer that. And we're seeing it from leaders like Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand and Erna Solberg in Norway, to take two examples from two very uh, geographically distant parts of the world. (laughs) And so I'm very fascinated by, and obviously this is, you know, a lot of the subject matter of the book that you have written is around the idea of, you know, what, what are these different experiences and they are different experiences but what are also commonalities amongst the experiences and one of the topics that comes up very often on this show is the idea of how do we attract a more representative parliament and of course you know the number one step in it being more representative is that you have a representative you know male and female you know in parliament and one of the theories that gets floated a lot is just the very construction of of our parliamentary system, the time away from home, the fact that it is often, you know, away from families and, you know, it's not set up in a way. It's set up in a way that it favours the old dad can go away and leave, you know, wife and kids at home versus, you know, a woman being able to do the same thing. Is there something structurally? It strikes me that during this time where we could be reimagining the way that we parliament, you know, we're construct, constricted at the moment by people not being able to fly, not being able to be in Canberra. Surely this should be a time where we're reimagining how the actual parliament itself works? I think there's a real opportunity to do that now. I mean, I'm careful in all of this sort of dialogue that we don't bake the gender stereotyping in. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's been a healthy line of uh, feminist thinking over generations now that uh, more women in structures would make those structures kinder and more consensual. 
I actually think that does bake the gender stereotyping in. You know, um, men's brains and women's brains aren't inherently different. We actually look at that in the book and we end up saying a lot of what's passed off as neuroscience is actually neurosexism. So to the extent that men and women lead differently, it's that they've been socialised differently and men can be the tough commanding leader and people will accept that, but they will reject a woman who tries to lead in that style. I'll only give her permission to lead if she manages to combine strength and empathy. And I think we've just got to be careful that, as we say, let's move on from the style of politics we have now. If we want strength and empathy combined rather than command and control and bluster, then we need to ask that of all of our representatives, men and women, not just say that's what the women should bring to the parliament. Otherwise, you're putting an extra sort of thing on their shoulders that the men don't. And on the work and family life, you know, some of that, not all of it, but some of it uh, comes from the fact that domestic labour is still so inequitably shared. And if it was more equitably shared, then a number of issues about how women can approach their careers would inherently fall away. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some structural things. And, you know, I've been a big proponent of affirmative action targets, getting more women into parliament. I think that's changed the Labor Party. I was um, glad to see when I was in politics that the non-members bar became a childcare centre and uh, every wit ever since has joked that behaviour has improved as a result. Um, and we need, we need to do more of that. I mean, just one simple idea I saw in the UK, which we don't have here, is a woman member of parliament who was taking time off to have her baby was able to appoint a locum to run her constituency because local MPs do a whole lot of stuff, you know, and people want to go and see them and say, oh, I'm not getting a fair deal from Centrelink or immigration or whatever it is. Um, so why shouldn't you have someone who does that work while the local MPs off on parental leave? Um, simple. Why not do it? Uh, so, yes, I think we can reimagine things. I think in this era, much of the committee work that people have travelled around the country for, the virtual way of working will now be seen to be satisfactory, and that'll mean less time on planes, more time at home. And I think... There's an opportunity here, not just in politics, but in all walks of life. I mean, if we can truly take the best of virtual working with us, it will mean a whole lot of jobs and career paths are easier for people who are trying to combine work and family life. And we know that that combination uh, tends to be one that women are really in the centre of. And I'm glad that you said not just for women, but also for men, because I think that that's a really important i i think that a lot of this you know some people working from home seeing their family more being involved more in the you know sharing the domestic duties or i've seen in a lot of relationships the roles have been reversed because you know the the female partner's job has suddenly been the job that's continued the male partner's job has gone away suddenly they're the full-time you know person and i think that men are getting we should be getting as much out of this as 
you know, the opposite. And I like that you think about both of it in that regard. I think a restructure wouldn't just be good to attract more women to parliament, but I think a restructure would be good because it would cement the parliamentarians in their own communities a little bit more and in their own homes and their families a little bit more. But I love it. So thank you. Um, I, I am fascinated by the hurdles that still, I mean, I'm talking to a person who was the prime minister of the country, but you are the only female prime minister of our country. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the amount of extra hurdles that are in the way. You have to do all the same things, all the regular hurdles, but then there's the extra hurdles. And it was interesting to me to find out that no matter the different cultures you were speaking to, and perhaps speaking in countries where, you know, Jacinda Ardern, I think, is the third female leader of her country, you know, different experiences, still some of those exact same hurdles were in the way. What are the major hurdles that almost everybody has to face? Well, just to set a bit of context there, Jacinda is the third female prime minister and there's only one other country on earth that's had three female prime ministers and that's Iceland. Uh, 70% of countries around the world have never had a female leader, never had a female president or prime minister. And we in this book interviewed women from around the world and I went into it with a pretty open question in my mind as to whether the experiences of women in Africa, you know, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was president of Liberia, Joyce Bander, who was president of Malawi, whether their experiences would be entirely different to mine or Hillary Clinton's or Theresa May or Jacinda Ardern's. And yet we did find big differences, but also huge similarities. It's, you know, sexism is a global phenomenon, and the way it puts barriers in front of women tends to be the same around the world. So all of our women spoke about this um, sort of narrow pathway of needing to p combine strength and empathy and knowing if they slid off the path and they were too tough, they'd get a backlash, but if they were too soft, they'd get a backlash as well. All of them talked about a ridiculous focus on appearance and how time-consuming it was. And all of them talked about the increased um, public interest in their family structures, uh, what we summarised of as the question, who's minding the kids, uh, which routinely uh, women leaders get asked and men don't get asked because it's just assumed they've got someone at home who's making all of that happen for them. We interrupt this episode of Velocity because Charlie Clawson's back. We need to pay some bills. Who's today's sponsor, Charlie? Our sponsor today is Chelster Will. And let's get ready for some real talk. You ready for that? You ready for some truth? Oh, okay. Oh, man. I don't know if I am ready, but <laughs> lay it on me. We all drop our phones. The question is, do you put up with a damaged phone or do you replace your device entirely? Uh, well, what I do is, yes, use the phone until my finger that I use on my phone is more glass than the <laughs> phone itself. And then I replace the phone. What's the, what's the stupidest way you've ever smashed your phone? Oh, I recently smashed my phone. There was a friend of ours who was getting really mad at me because I didn't have a protective cover. I've got like a cover around the Screen phone, cover. but I don't have that sort of plastic coating on the phone because I don't really like it. 
And she was saying, oh, you need a screen cover. That's going to help if you smash your phone. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's the protection around the sides. Like I've dropped it heaps of times. It's never smashed. The protection around the sides is fine. And then three days later, without a word of a lie, it fell out of my hands and the whole way down to the ground, I could just see it was face up and it wasn't going to hit any of the protecting coating around the side and it shattered into a thousand pieces. It's like dropping buttered toast. You know for sure it's just going to land face down. I was at a wedding in New Zealand. My wife and I were running late. And as we're getting into the car, she's like, can you hold my handbag? I'm like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. We get to the wedding and she's like, oh, fuck, I forgot my phone. I think I left it at home. We got home, couldn't find the phone. And then we went in to find my phone. We found it on a street on the way to the wedding because in the rush to get into the car, I'd put it on the roof of the car and then jumped in and drove. Oh. The great thing was I'd, my wife never mentioned it, not once afterwards. Uh, and it will never come up again. <laughs> I'm sure the last time she mentioned it is definitely the last time she's ever going to mention it. <laughs> well, luckily, Telstra's made changes for clumsy people like you and me, Will. Visit Telstra to find out how to upgrade your phone twice a year, even if damaged, when you add on Upgrade and Protect to a new device plan. And now for the legals. Just return your old device and take up a new device plan. Redemption fee applies. But also, I mean, this was obviously your personal experience. If if the question to who's minding the kids is, I don't have any kids, that is also problematic. Oh, yes, it is. I learned very early in my uh, political career that for a woman in politics, there is no right answer to the question. <laughs> No right answer to the question. So, you know, the Tanya Plebiseks and Nicola Roxons and people like that who I went through politics with, and of course, Tanya's still there, uh, they had their families whilst uh, we were all in Parliament and they would routinely get asked, well, you know, how are you going to make all of this work when you've got kids? And yet men who had children of exactly the same age never got asked. For me, it was a different dynamic, which is, you know, you don't have kids, you've chosen not to be a mother, you know, how can you possibly understand family life? Doesn't that mean you're kind of a pretty hard-bitten career girl and, you know, should we really have someone like that um, exercising major political power? Um, you know, and, and I can recall some hilarious moments about all of this. There was, of course, the fruit bowl scandal uh, that I was photographed in a kitchen with a, a bowl that didn't have fruit in it and, you know, no amount of saying it's a decorative bowl and the design's at the centre of the bowl and that's why you need to leave it empty. No amount of doing that was ever going to correct the fruit bowl scandal. Um, but when all of that got stupid, I also remember uh, a woman, I was walking down the street in my electorate, a woman, you know, pulling up her car next to me and shouting out of the window, if you need kids for politics, you can take mine, sort of gesturing, <laughs> gesturing at the children she had in the back seat. <laughs> Is that, I mean, it must be incredibly frustrating. You know, you talk about those little things, the things that don't matter versus the things that do matter. When you're in the middle of something like that, I'm less interested in the bullshit that it is because it's obviously bullshit, but I'm, I am very interested in how you handle it. You're handling it now with, you know, good humor. Do you handle it with good humor at the time also, or is there a frustration at the time of like, why the fuck won't they stop talking about this stupid fruit bowl? <laughs> um, there's 
Definitely frustration, sort of, you know, a, a world-weary slump of the shoulders. Uh, Hillary Clinton um, is, uh, she talked to us about, and she's uh, talked publicly before, she actually went to the extent of adding up how many hours she spent in hair and makeup when she was campaigning to be president. It adds up to 24 days um, in hair and makeup and, you know, just eye-rollingly frustrating that she had to do that because if she didn't, people would be going, oh, my God, she looks awful, uh, whereas she's running against... Donald Trump and whatever people might say about him, you know, he's not exactly um, George Clooney or Brad Pitt, is he? Um, and yet that didn't seem to matter. So, yes, it's frustrating, but I am one of those people who whose protective mechanisms includes having a laugh about stuff, sending up the absurdity of stuff. It's one thing that's helped me keep, um, you know, kind of able to go with it and not just get, you know, teeth grindingly angry about it. I ask people on this show, it's a loose conceit, and look, we've only got to it at 40 minutes in, but it's a loose conceit. I like to ask people if they have a personal philosophy. It can be towards anything, life, love, you know, family, you know, anything, uh, you know, politics, it does not really matter what it is. But do you have a, a guiding principle or a little philosophy by which you live? Yeah, I think um, I'm someone who's always believed that we've got a responsibility to make a change in the world, an impact in the world. So that's guided me throughout all of my life. I am also very attracted to a saying that a great friend of mine has. She's been known to say continuously, when you're skating on thin ice, you might as well be tap dancing. And I quite like that. You know, the <laughs> devil may care. You might as well give it a try, see if you can do it. And so, you know, I'm not someone who's, um, you know, in, in personal demeanour-wise, I'm not someone who would come across as a big risk-taker. I don't, you know, throw myself out of planes or anything like that, but I think that there have been uh, times in my career when I've been prepared to push myself well beyond my comfort zone. So a bit of tap dancing, sometimes on thin ice. Uh, so the tap dancing I'm interested in because you are someone who has, you know, a very engaging personality. I think, you know, previous to you having the leadership in Australia, it was something that people had particularly warmed to. People felt like they really knew you and they liked you. And, you know, certainly now, you know, it, when we see you making public appearances, that's the Julia Gillard we see. Did you feel like you had to put a little bit of that personality aside when you were the leader of the country? It wasn't so much a conscious decision I need to put that aside as, I guess, a tightening because, you know, every word matters when you're Prime Minister. I mean, you know, words mattered when I was Deputy Prime Minister too. If I'd said something, you know, really dumb about the economy or whatever, that would have had consequences. But words matter even more when you're Prime Minister. So you sort of tighten around that. And then, you know, I think you... Um, the, the days are so pressurised, the style of engagements, press conferences and the like can be so combative, that tightens you too. And so there's less flow in it. And I also think this intuitive sense that for women, 
the pathway to being acceptable as a leader is a pretty narrow one. That does self-limit your behaviour, and I'm not alone in expressing that. Each of the women we talk to for the book uh, express that as well. Do you look at uh, Jacinda Ardern and like get a little jealous that it seems like she hasn't had to do that quite as much. You still see a great deal of her personality and she's faced a couple of very decent challenges in the time that she's been in charge as well. It's not like it's all been able to be DJing parties and, you know, light fluffy jokes online, but it seems that maybe because of the nature of New Zealand itself, I think that plays a, a, a big part, but also perhaps because, as we said previously, she's the third female leader of the country as well, that she perhaps was able to let more of her own personality through? I think the way she shows her sort of whole self, um, partly it's about her and it says volumes of good things about her, that she brought a particular style into politics, she wanted to foreground kindness and she's never deviated from that, even when she's been under incredible pressure. So it says a lot about her. But she, when you speak to her about it, also says it is about the New Zealand environment. Uh, Being the third, a more benign media environment, she actually said to us, and we record this in the book, that if she'd uh, grown up in Australia and her choice had been Australian politics with our media and our political style, she's not sure she would have done it. She's not sure she could have, um, you know, thrived in politics here. So uh, it says um, good things about her and good things about New Zealand. And I know that we have our healthy little competition with New Zealand, uh, but maybe we can learn a fair bit from that. Then the other end of the spectrum, the sort of, you know, it's far away from from, uh, you know, Jacinda Ardern, as you could probably get, is another leader that I'm absolutely fascinated about, but also I think perhaps, you know, is an, you know, a product of the environment, which is Angela Merkel, who's just been such an incredible leader for such a long time. And, you know, in a, again, when you're talking about the idea of being judged on appearance or family or these sort of hurdles that women have to face, talk to me a little bit about her and and why you see she's been so successful. Yes, she is a remarkable uh, leader and in a very different style. And I think that reinforces that there's not one way for women to lead. I mean, Jacinda, Erna Solberg, other female leaders at this time have brought a lot of um, empathy to the task. You know, Jacinda with her uh, late night online messages, Erna Solberg doing things with school children online to reassure them about the virus. Whereas Chancellor Merkel has brought her precise scientific brain to the fore and been incredibly upfront about what the nation needed to do. So um, it, it's, it's a different, a different style. Uh, I think she's um, thrived uh, because of her inherent merits as a leader. She's thrived too because of the context of Germany. I do think that there's uh, been less of a focus on appearance questions and other things in Germany than there would have been in many other nations. Um, The reunification project East and West, because she came from the East, I think she had a particular mindset and ability to do that. Uh, But, you know, her longevity as a leader, I think, gives us a lot of hope about 
how women can lead and lead in various and different ways. And I hope when she uh, finishes and she is going to exit being Chancellor that she writes and writes on this gendered question. She hasn't spoken about it in office, but I'm confident she thinks about it and I hope she does write on it. So why did you write on it because there is a difference between you know being involved in groups you know that are working uh, around helping all these sort of issues but uh, the idea of actually putting it in a book what was the idea and purpose of that well the idea came out of a series of conversations between me and my co-author Ngozi and we would be at international meetings together me doing the global partnership for education work you know education for children in poorer countries her chairing the global vaccine alliance getting vaccines to children in poorer countries and we got chattering in the sidelines of these international meetings about ourselves, our lives, you know, things that we'd done. But more and more, we started talking about what was happening to women leaders. And Ngozi obviously focused a great deal on Africa and she could bring those experiences to the conversation. And then Hillary lost and we're like, oh my God, something is going on here that is huge and needs to be understood. And, you know, could we make a contribution to better understanding it? So, Two incredibly busy women decide, I know, let's write a book. Um, but we, uh, we've really enjoyed it. And we ultimately, the purpose in writing it was as a manifesto for change. We hope that people pick it up. And no matter what their corner of the world, whether they're a young woman who's aspiring to be a leader, whether they're a man who's trying to think how he can help, whether they're a journalist who's thinking about their own practice in writing um, and whether they put sexist bits in, whoever you are, there's some takeaway lessons about how you can help uh, to change the circumstances for women and to make sure that they're more fairly assessed. How we can help is a question that, comes up a lot. And I'm very grateful that it comes up a lot from the male listeners to this podcast when we have somebody on talking about one of these things or from, say, white men when we're talking about race or from, you know, straight men when we're talking about sexuality. You know, it is a question that comes up a lot, which is how can we help, which I, I like that we're asking that question now. When it comes to, you know, creating an environment for women leaders in whatever field that they might be. And it's something that my industry also has had its own struggles with and continues to have its own struggles with, which is the representation of women in comedy versus the representation of men in comedy. How, how, how can we help? If there's somebody listening to this going, I want to do something today to make to start making a difference, how do we help? I think step one, it starts with the simple things. You know, the research shows that if a group of five meet to discuss a problem, unless there are four women in that group and only one man, the women won't get a fair share of the talking time. Uh, So, you know, as a man, uh, maybe you could think from time to time, have I talked too much? Or (laughs) you could... Hang on, is this feedback on this interview, Julia? (laughs) Not feedback on the interview. Um, Or you could, uh, as the group meets, actually invite into the conversation women who haven't uh, had the opportunity to say anything or to say anything much. 
all of our women leaders talked about the frustration of being in meetings, and these are high-level political meetings, where a woman would bring an idea to the table and the conversation would just move on, and then a man would say the same thing and everybody would go, that's genius. Well, you know, men can change that by saying, oh, I think Susie actually said that first. You know, men often are in power positions, disproportionately in power positions. They can use that power to analyse the barriers in their own organisations that are stopping women coming through. I mean, this isn't in the book, but on my own podcast, I interviewed uh, Sandy Toxvig, who talked about her start in comedy, where she'd go to venues that, you know, didn't have a a bathroom, you know, the men would use the sink, Um, you know, not a very nice image, but um, it was, you know, kind of, oh, well, you just need to thrive in this environment uh, that women were routinely, um, you know, harassed or asked, you know, had pressure put on them, sexual harassment to get the best venues and where you get your act place really matters as to whether or not you're going to kick on. I mean, people know those things about their own industry and they can act to change them. I'll have to cut that out though because unfortunately you're not allowed to plug another podcast on my, po- on my podcast. <laughs> this is no. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true and I mean to be honest I've played some comedy rooms where you'd be happy to get a sink <laughs> and not a bucket but, but it's it is all, something All glam that, that comedy think, career isn't it? Just all glam <laughs> Oh Yeah I can't believe what's been taken away from us at the moment. <laughs> the glitz and the glamour uh, I, I am conscious of the fact that we have a limited amount of time and there are some standard questions that I ask of everybody on this podcast, so I might jump into those if that's okay. Uh, the first one is, uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, I think we just go. I don't believe that there's anything afterwards except uh, people's memories of you. And if they're good memories, I think that's a version of heaven. And if they're very bad memories, that's a version of hell. When you hope that people uh, remember you and remember you, you know, for something nice, this is this is the this is not the what will people remember you for question. This is the ideally. What would you love people to remember you for question? I mean, I'm practical enough to know that uh, the first line of my obituary will be uh, former Australian Prime Minister, and I'm happy enough with that. Uh, But I hope people uh, remember um, more of the contribution than that. I hope I can be remembered as more of a human being than the office I once held. Do you imagine... That you, because this must be a confronting thing for somebody who has scaled the heights of their career that you have scaled. Do you, you say that the first line will be former Prime Minister of Australia? It will probably be even more specific than that, which will be first female Prime Minister of Australia. That's that's history. That's not just Prime Minister of Australia. That's something that no one can ever take away from you. You will be part of hopefully a more positive history of this country, you know, the more female leaders we have, the more diverse leaders we have, they will be able to look back and, you know, point at the fact that you were the person who finally, you know, broke through that and made it more possible for them to do what they did. So that is an incredible legacy for anybody to have in their lifetime. How do you let that, do you, I'm just interested and I don't know how exactly to phrase this, but Do you think you could still do something with the rest of your life or do you hope that you could still do something with the rest of your life that actually knocks that off being the thing that is most 
historic about your life or are you kind of in a mindset of like well that's that's it that's my that's the first line and now I'll just you know do these other things does that make sense as a question I'm it it does it does and um there's there's a curious freedom in knowing that the first line of your obituary is written and it's not a bad line, you know, I don't, I don't feel the need to, um, I, I don't feel the need to knock that off with something else, um, and that does mean you get more opportunities and choices. You've got a wider canvas on which to paint than if you were, you know, absolutely focused on getting another title or another achievement that would substitute for that one. Okay. So uh, when your friends speak about you behind your back, what do you hope they say? Oh, I hope they say she's a good friend and she's been there for us. And times in my life when that's been harder to do than others. <laughs> what is your greatest strength? Let's not say as a as a politician, although it might, I guess, be you know, tied up with that. But what do you consider to be your greatest strength? Uh, I think that I persevere. I think I'm someone who can... Uh, a critic would say I can be incredibly stubborn. I hope a uh, kinder person would say that I've got a lot of fortitude, uh, but I don't leave things half done. In life, when are you most proud of yourself? Most um, proud of myself. When I can point to having made a difference, when I can feel that I'm having a positive impact on others or the world. And and the opposite, when are you most disappointed with yourself? I guess when I feel that I missed an opportunity to do something that mattered or I didn't do it well, um, that I, you know, let myself down or let others down. Does that stuff stay with you? I imagine, obviously, when you've been leader of the country, that's your opportunity to shape the nation. It's probably the greatest opportunity you're ever going to have. It's the title on the desk. It's the whole point of the job in the first place. Um, And so there's always going to be regrets. There's always going to be things that you did not achieve that you would have loved to achieve. How much do those things stay with you or are you able to leave them behind? They're intellectually with me, but not um, as an emotional burden. You know, I'm a big um, new day, new dawn person. You can't change the past. You can um, write the future. So I focus on that rather than, you know, should have, could have in the past. You don't need to tell me what this thing is, but I like to ask this question, which is... um, Was there ever a time in your life that you've made a mistake that you thought was so bad that you would not be able to go on or, you know, that people wouldn't forgive you for that mistake? Again, I don't need to know the details of the mistake if you're not comfortable to say, but I just am interested in have you ever felt like you've fucked it up so badly that there was no new day, new dawn? Yes, um, I have felt like that in my life and uh, it's, you know, uh, that despairing feeling uh, is uh, a dreadful one. I can feel it again if I can put myself back in those moments. Uh, I'm fortunate that 
whilst I felt like that, I was over time able to work my way through um, that set of emotions and what was putting the pressure on and get to a new day, new dawn. Great. Um, okay, we're nearly done. We've just got a few more questions to go. So uh, I, I like this one, which is this: if you could take any skill and from anyone in the world, and you don't have to learn how to do this, you don't have to do your ten thousand hours. I've got a little magic wand, and I'm going to, you know, tap you with the magic wand, and I give you the ability to, um, you know, have any any skill in the world. What is a skill that you admire in someone else that you would like yourself? Oh. Um... It would be fantastic to be able to sing. I'd like that. <laughs> Could you? And what sort of singer would you be if you were if you were a really fantastic singer? What sort of singer would you be? I um, don't think I'd be on the cutting edge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what you? What would be your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I'd be. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, so I'd be back there. Uh, maybe uh, I will survive. <laughs> oh, see, that's nice. That's good. I like that. Let's not rule that out yet. I would like to see that still happen at some stage. Uh, okay. If you if again, I've got another magic wand. It's lucky I've got a cupboard of magic wands, so we get to use some of them today. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to change one thing right now that will have an incredibly positive effect on the world. What's the one thing that I can do? Uh, the one thing is when you next encounter someone who our society would say their status is less than yours for whatever reason, uh, you say to yourself, I'm not going to fall for all of that and I'm going to treat them as an equal and how I would like to be treated. When was the last time you cried? Oh, I got teary when I went to Canberra and watched a young woman who's a great friend of mine. She's worked with me in this time since uh, I left uh, federal parliament, a woman called Marielle Smith, uh, and she gave her first speech in the Senate. She's a new senator, and I was just so pleased and proud. Do you still get to watch the footy? Uh, have you, did you watch the Bulldogs game this week? I didn't, um, but I do uh, from time to time. I haven't been to a match for a long time, and none of us have been to a match for a long time. Um, it's a bit harder, obviously, living in Adelaide. Uh, it's not uh, quite the same as uh, you know being uh, near the ground of the Bulldogs, but I still like the footy. And uh, last but not least and thank you so much for your time this has been a great pleasure and uh, thank you so much the book is absolutely fantastic you know obviously a couple of things that we've talked about in this interview are in the book but I'm I always have the I, I, I would rather people read the book. You know, we could have talked about all the things that are in the book, but I'd rather people actually read the book. It's really fantastic and yet another chapter in the incredible work that you've been doing. I mean, I think that your legacy as Prime Minister is going to be there, but I think the work that you've done with the Royal Commission into child sex abuse, the work that you're doing now, um, you know, on behalf of others, you know, put, putting the ladder back down for other people is also going to be an incredible part of your legacy. And it's been a real pleasure to, you know, have this chat with you this afternoon. So, so, well, this morning? No, this afternoon now. We've made it over the 12 o'clock mark, so technically this afternoon. Uh, uh, so this is the final question. I have a time machine. Uh, it is a return trip. 
And you can go to any point in your own life. You can go to any point in history. Now you don't have to do the big stuff like kill Hitler or anything like that. I'm gonna <laughs> send back. I'm gonna send back the you know the appropriate person to do that in the time machine. This is purely for your own indulgence. Is there a time or place in history or in your own life that you would like to go back and and change or observe? I don't think there's one in my own life, but oh, I'd just be so intrigued to uh, go back in history and meet particularly some of the authors that I've most loved and have shaped my thinking. Um, If I could uh, be sitting next to Jane Austen as she wrote, I'd like that, or Virginia Woolf or John Steinbeck, uh, any of those, it would be magic. Okay. You know what? We'll make an exception for you. We'll get in a little Algonquin roundtable of your favourite authors and we'll we'll get them all in the time machine and get them to you. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. This takes us to the end of the show, but we have one more good thing to share, especially for those amongst us who are clumsy. Telstra have made changes for the phone fumblers. Visit Telstra to find out how to upgrade your phone, even if damaged, with Upgrade.